0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Zarek.
1: And then it occurred to me that we'd had many people by that time at the cabin who had had the experience of the visitors would come to the cabin and they would come and, you know, groups of people would see them. You know, it wasn't a... And those people are all named in my book. In fact, it's probably... my My life is probably one of the most extensively multiple witness paranormal experiences there has ever been.
2: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zeland News Communications and Zeland News Network. Victor, welcome. How are you, my friend?
3: Just fine, Richard. It's great to be with you on this very momentous evening with the guests that we have tonight. Yeah, this, I
2: think, promises to be pretty revelatory, I'd say. All right. In uh, 2015, Whitley Strieber experienced... A stunning return of strange beings that he had met in 1985 and written about in the mega bestseller, Communion. A New World starts in September 2015, describes experiences he's had as recently as October of 2019. No longer is the world wondering about whether or not this is all real. In 2018, the U.S. Navy admitted that videos taken off the carrier Nimitz by pilots using ultra sophisticated cameras were of unknown objects with incredible flight characteristics add to this the past 70 years of ufo evidence and it is now undeniable that something unknown is flying around in our skies they're here but why there are millions of close encounter witnesses who'd say that they're here for us And have already been in contact with us for two generations, while the official world and the media have been in denial. A new world describes what it's like not just to encounter them, but to live in contact with them. It'll shatter all of our previous theories and beliefs and reveal the experience for what it is. The strangest, most powerful, and potentially most important thing that has ever happened to mankind. Whitley Strieber is widely known for his best-selling account of his own close encounter, Communion: A True Story, and has produced a television special based on Confirmation for NBC. He's also the author of the vampire novels The Hungry, The Hunger Rather, The Last Vampire, and Lilith's Dream, and is the host of his own popular podcast Dreamland. His website The world's most popular site featuring topics of the edge of science and culture is unknowncountry.com. Again, his new book, A New World. Whitley Strieber, welcome aboard. How are you?
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
2: Where have we reached you tonight? What part of the country?
1: I'm in California.
2: Ah, okay. I want to go back to December 26, 1985. And for those... There may be a few, hard to believe, but there may be a few who have not read Communion and are not familiar with these entities that you encountered. You describe them as having darting big eyes, insectoid, along with some stocky, dark blue trolls. Tell me about that. It sounded almost uh, as if if it was kind of a violent encounter. You were injured.
1: Yeah, I was injured. What happened was something, it came out of nowhere as far as I was concerned. I was not a UFO believer, not interested, and I hadn't been since I was a child. I had been in, when I grew, was growing up in the 50s who could not be interested, because it was all over the newspapers and the television in those days. But then suddenly this, I woke up on the morning of the 26th in a very strange state. I was upset and confused and had not obviously not had a good night I remembered quite a ruckus, I would say, but had no explanation for it because it had been a quiet night in our little vacation home in upstate New York. So I didn't really understand. Finally, I decided that an owl must have gotten into the house. But as my wife gently pointed out to me, since all the windows were closed and we had no fireplace and the wood stove had been burning all night, that was not possible. So as evening fell, I decided that the owl, which I could not get out of my mind, these huge big eyes, must have been standing on the windowsill of our bedroom. And I went up to the bedroom as the sun was setting and looked at the windowsill. It was snowy, and so there would have been footprints in the snow along the sill. And there were none. And I can remember feeling the most disturbing feeling, nameless, and quite awful at that moment. And then, you know, night came on, and I just went through hell. I I had a very difficult night. The next day, I was in considerable pain and very confused. I, I couldn't figure out what to think of the memories that were beginning to float back into my mind, a confused, it felt like I'd been beaten up or been at some kind of wild party. It was just inexplicable. And I, I let this go on for a few days. And I finally, I started writing a story called Pain, which reflected my inner feelings, I mean, being a writer. And during the time I was writing this story, I happened to pick up a book that my brother had sent me for Christmas called Science and the UFOs, and or about that time. I'm, I might not be the timeline might not be absolutely precise, but at some point I picked up the book and I read a bit of it and kind of forgot about it. But then, by then, I was getting clear that something had happened to me. I was I was hurting physically. My my rectum was injured, and my head. I had an injury in my head, and I had these, what I regarded as vivid memories of hallucinatory experience of some kind, and frankly, I began to think I had been attacked by someone who had used some kind of mind-altering substance on me, and that led me to think that my book, War Day, which I had published about a year and a half before, might have caused a negative reaction uh, from the then the Reagan administration because, as it happened, it it, it was a book of an, uh, against limited nuclear war about the dangers of limited nuclear war, and it had been sort of picked up by the left quite unexpectedly to me because I'm not really a member of the left and uh, used to destroy a Reagan initiative to fund FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, to harden our industrial infrastructure against nuclear attack. And so that had happened, and I had been warned by a Senate uh, uh, staffer that I might be targeted for the book. And in those days, it was still commonplace for people to get what were known as political tax audits, where the IRS would come in and start auditing every penny and cost you a lot of money with your accountant and just generally hassle you. That's not done anymore, but it was fairly common then. And so I would assume that would might be what happened. And my taxes are so simple that it, it wouldn't have been much of a big deal. So I just forgot about it. Then I thought to myself, well, maybe this is it. Maybe they tried to drive me crazy.
2: Some sort of electronic harassment.
1: Well, no, I mean, it was physical. It was that night was a physical thing. Right. So I thought I had seen someone during the event. I recalled seeing a man I had known in high school and college. and In fact, in grade school, too. We'd been friends for many years, and he joined the Central Intelligence Agency and sort of dropped out of my life. But I still had what I thought was his phone number, his home phone number in, in Houston, and so I telephoned him because I thought I'd seen him with these strange beings that I now remembered. And I thought, well, there were no strange beings. They don't don't, don't exist, but he exists. And maybe I was drugged, and maybe he had something to do with it, because, you know, he would have done it. I mean, I, I'm sure if he'd been ordered to, he would have. He was a very patriotic man. And, um When I called him, his phone number was disconnected, so I thought, well, he's moved, and I called his brother. This is is now, I guess, February, January, yeah, February of 1986. His brother told me, well, he died last March. So he'd been dead for months when I saw him, big as life, and talked to him. And I thought, what the heck? then I went to the doctor I told the whole story to the doctor, including the story of the little men and the, all that stuff, which I just thought was stupid. And uh, he said, well, it sounds to me like you're telling me you're taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. I said, yeah, I know it does. And uh, what am I going to do about this? And he said, well, I think two things. I think the first thing we need to do is an MRI scan, Of your brain, and then you need to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Let's let's get this thing straightened out. And I said, Yeah, because I mean, I thought, my God, I've had a psychotic break, and I went practically crazy. I I went. I thought to myself, I've got to. My wife will be if I end up psychotic. What is? How is she going to support our son if she's not divorced from me before I'm? I ended up having to be committed. She can't get rid of me. And, you know, so I started trying to get her to divorce me, and it was just an unbelievable dust-up, the whole family. And and I continued reading the book my, my brother had given me. It was an odd business, you know. He had found the book in a bookstore in San Antonio, and what was strange about it was it was... It was uh, lying out on a, on a table, and he didn't even know really why he'd picked it up. He just felt like I might like it. And he was interested in UFOs. I was not. And he tried to buy it, and they said, well, it's not in our inventory, and it's denominated in British currency. But we'll sell it to you anyway for $5 or something. And so he bought it and sent it to me. But here's the weird part. It seems to me that somebody put it there for him to find. Mm. Isn't that strange? And then, um, anyway, I get into the book, and I get toward the end, and there's this story about this guy called Bud Hopkins, and it describes a UFO, an alien abduction, and it sounded just like what happened to me. And so um, I told my wife all this, and she, she reacted. I said, honey, I think I might have been taken aboard a flying saucer by aliens. And she said, oh, thank God, I thought you were going crazy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not, the, uh, not the response you were, were well, uh, thinking well, my of. My
1: wife was one of the coolest and smartest people I ever knew in my life. I mean, if there's anyone in the world who could roll with a thing like that and make it make sense, it was Anne, And she did right. just that.
3: We should
2: we should point out, Whitley, that you had these neurological uh, exams, and they they checked for something called frontal lobe ep- epilepsy, which temporal can cause epilepsy. hallucinations. Oh, I had
1: everything, not just temporal lobe yeah. epilepsy. We checked for psychotics, an exhaustive series of psychological tests, uh, brain scans, uh, all kinds of tests, including tests for various diseases that cause hallucinations, including temporal lobe epilepsy, and I came out, where I came out was, A, I had not just a stable, normally stable brain in terms of uh, seizure-related stuff, but an unusually stable brain. And uh, in terms of psychological tests, what they found was a consistent, deep level of stress, but no sign of any psychotic problems of any kind whatsoever so you you add those two things up and what do you get you get where I came to something happened to me so I decided what the hell I know we're gonna go over and see this Hopkins character he lived not far from us in Manhattan so we went over to see him he was a very sweet guy Beautiful home, all kinds of beautiful books and everything. He's an artist, and I um, I talked to him and told him pretty much what I just told you, and he was fascinated. And He said, "Well, he he wanted to hypnotize me," and I thought to myself, "He's an artist. I don't he see any medical licenses anywhere around here." So I said, "No, I'd rather not do that." I'd if I'm going to talk to anyone, it would be a, have to be a psychiatrist who's skilled in, in, in the kind of interrogation you say we need, because he was telling me that, these were, that there were actual memories behind all the confusion, and they were buried, and by the stress and by the trauma, which I could easily believe. So he introduces me to the head of the New York State Department of Psychiatry, Dr. Donald Klein. And Dr. Klein is a forensic hypnotist who solved many criminal cases with his ability to extract seemingly forgotten facts from people. So all this stuff that went on after my book came out of, A, lie detectors don't work, and B, hypnosis is nonsense, were just false. Because it's not nonsense, and it works well in the hands of a real pro like he was. I had three sessions with him the first session concerned an incident that happened in October of 1985 when two friends Annie Gottlieb and Jacques Sandalescu were in the house the country house and they were asleep in a guest room downstairs Andrew my little boy was sleeping next in the next room and they, um, there came, I was awakened in the middle of the night by an incredibly bright light shining in the windows, like sunlight, and then it just disappeared with a loud bang. And everyone started yelling. My little boy started yelling. At Jock and Annie, were. I could hear their voices. I thought initially when the light came, when I woke up to the, all this light, I thought that roof was on fire. But then, obviously, when the light went out, it wasn't. So I proceeded to run downstairs and tell everybody everything was okay. And then go in and comfort my little boy, who was seven years old, six years old. and uh, (laughs) But it wasn't okay, obviously. What the heck happened? Later, Annie, in the morning, Annie said she had heard our cats running on the running across the floor upstairs. We were, we, they, their bedroom was immediately below us. And the problem was our cats weren't there. So what were those scurrying footprints she'd heard, Foot, footfalls she'd heard? Jacques found the light so bright that he thought it was morning, and he got up because he thought he'd overslept. But the night was dark and foggy. So when I got hypnotized, I remembered seeing these dark blue figures in the room, and I just totally lost it. The hypnosis session is mostly the sound of me screaming. It was unbelievably terrifying, unbelievably. To just see things that aren't supposed to exist standing right there, right beside your bed.
2: I think you described them as stocky,
3: dark blue trolls.
1: Right, exactly. I know them now. I've I've had them in my life for years, and I'm not scared of them at all anymore. In fact, looking back, it's hilarious that I ever was scared of them. But in any case, I sure was, and you can understand, when something like that arrives in your bedroom without warning, it's going to be profoundly concerning, to say the least. And so I had blocked it all out. Then the second hypnosis session comes, and... We go to the business of December the 26th, and the whole thing just opened up in my mind in vivid detail.
2: We're gonna take a time out here. We'll come back and we'll get you to continue on with the, uh, the second hypnosis session, taking us back to December 26th, 1985. That really started it all, Whitley Strieber. His new book is A New World. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network stays with us. Back with more right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. What can I say about ESS-60 I haven't already said? It's a miracle in a bottle. ESS-60 is pure carbon-60, and carbon-60 is a miracle molecule that earned its discoverers a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I've been taking a tablespoon of ESS-60 for my friends at C60 Evo every morning. What a difference it's made in my life. It delivers better health, mental clarity, and immune support. I'm pain-free, energized, and I'm sleeping better than I have in decades. ESS60 from C60 Evo is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that really works. And now you can experience C60 Evo's new Advanced Facial Serum the groundbreaking new anti-aging formula that incorporates ESS-60, plus 21 organic, natural, and vegan ingredients. This luxuriant formulation is specifically blended to soften and heal your skin. Put it on at night, enjoy the subtle rosemary essence, and awaken to noticeably softer skin. To get your ESS-60 and C60's new advanced facial serum, go to episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider.
0: As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know. He's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome
2: back. Whitley Strieber is with us for the full two hours. His latest book is A New World. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Also with us, special guest host, Whitley, the second hypnosis session that you had.
1: The second hypnosis session, the first thing that happened was the memories of the beings became very vivid from the time I was in the woods with them, not before that, but from then... I felt myself go up like in an elevator, but it was uh, not, I, I was not in anything, it was just I just rose up into the sky, I saw the woods below me, I was sitting in this circle of these beings with the friend I had mentioned before who was already dead. I went up into the air, and I found myself in a little round room, and there were all kinds of things going on, it was very crowded. There were these uh, fellows with uh, big uh, black eyes, and the little trolls were jumping around in there. It was a chaotic scene, and they proceeded to insert into me a device called uh, 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 a a device that that causes a an electrical current. I didn't know this at the time. Of course, I'd never heard of such a thing. But It turns out it was a commonplace. Thing that was used in those days to uh, help people who had sexual dysfunction and unable to have erections, and still used to this day in an animal husbandry because it what it does is it it in, it causes a mild electrical current to go into the nerve that causes an erection. And so you can hear me on the in, on the uh, hypnosis saying saying that I've got this and I've erection. I don't know where it came from because I can assure you that there was nothing in that room that would have suggested that I might want to have an erection. So then they proceeded to milk me like a cow. It was grotesque. And um, I struggled and they they turned on a machine that kept saying in this quiet sort of pleasant female voice that was also very mechanical, what can we do to help you stop screaming? What can we do to help you stop screaming? And not, the answer was not a damn thing. Uh, I ended. That's where I ended up with this rectal injury that became an, an international joke. I became an international laughing stock for having been raped. And you know, people are so sensitive these days to the idea of of that. But when it comes to women, but when it comes to a man, it's still open season on me. But it hurts in in the heart very much to be laughed at for being raped especially because the injury was so severe that I struggled with it for 20 years afterwards. It took me most of those years to even say the words to my wife, what the doctor had said to me so long ago, Whitley, you have been raped. And I can say it now quite easily, but it it was a long journey from there to here, believe me. And, you know, I'm still the butt of jokes, and I do mean butt. Uh. Uh, People snicker at it, and I wonder to myself every time it happens, you know, they used to, in the old days, they used to pay money to go to watch people suffer in hospitals and stuff in the 18th century, and people still like that. They still enjoy that, and I just never know why... Having an experience like this makes you very sensitive and aware of the suffering and needs of others. I'll, t- I'll say that for it. So anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, I, I wanted to... Uh, I mean, I... I don't know how to move on from that in, in a way because it's it's what you just said is so uh, profound and, and deeply disturbing the way that you were treated that way. Uh, but... Um, I wanted to ask you about these these insectoid type uh, creatures that you also discussed these big eyed insects I think you you, you described them as what what role were they playing in, in this
1: it, this looked like their ba- their their game it looked like their game uh, the little guys that were running around were their were their workers it seems to me um, they were sort of semi independent I recently had a I have a very complex life, I have to tell you. And there's no point in describing four-fifths of it because it's 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 beyond the description. But in any case, I do know something about these entities now. I do not know where they're from. I do not know precisely what they are in terms of their relationship to reality. In other words, I don't know whether there's some other planet that they're walking around on in this universe, or that there's something entirely different. But I do know certain things about them. I have recently learned that they are what are called, what I was described to me as nesting entities. In other words, they don't have the same kind of individuality that we do, they have a hierarchical nature with, uh, so if you can conceive of a, of a hive with a queen bee and then then around the queen bee layers and layers of ever less independent entities, and you have to think of the hive as a single person. And it, it's a great mistake when you see a group of them together to assume that they're all individual entities like us because they're not. And they also therefore have... A very different vision of reality than we do and a different meaning the world means something to them that's different from what it means to us and those are all things i've been chewing on lately and trying to understand how to have a relationship with them because they do come into my life quite frequently now i'm not scared of them at all anymore i understand what about them what there is a level of their, them that their, their are predators. But Hopkins was absolutely right about that. He he got angry at me because of the way communion was published, which he blamed me for. I had nothing to do with the way it was published. It was done by the publisher, and uh, and he remained angry at me for the rest of his life. But that doesn't mean he was wrong about, about a lot of things. Right, right. It only means that he that he got angry, and I couldn't do anything about it. I tried to, but he, he wouldn't, you know, he was too furious. And so, in any case, uh, th- there is something going on that involves the removal of human sexual material, uh, both eggs and sperm. I'm convinced of it. I certainly had sperm removed from my body. I know many women who describe eggs being moved, removed, and I know many people just like me who have seen babies that are apparently somehow a part of this other reality that 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 started with their own genetic material, their own sexual material, and uh, you know you, you you add all of that up, and you think to yourself maybe this is not something that we're going to really enjoy all as much when we understand it more fully and um, however that's on the one hand on the other hand the amount of knowledge I have gained from my relationship with them and the caring that has developed over the years as I have never I have never turned away from this as much as I wanted to I'll tell you this after I realized it was real, this was about March of 86, I said to Ann, you know, I have to figure this out. I have to figure out what I'm going to do. And she said, well, why don't you, why don't you try to recontact? And I thought, how in the world would I do that? And then it occurred to me there was only one thing I could do, which was to go back out in the woods in the night to where they had taken me up from, which I'm pretty sure I knew where it was, and just try.
2: You, you had stopped going to the cabin for some time after that that incident. N-
1: n- well, yeah, we, we got a little bit iffy about the cabin.
2: Sure, <laughs> understandably. Listen, <laughs> then, what, they have got to, uh, pardon the interruption, I've got no, to take another okay. quick time then out. We,
1: start, we'll c- we started going back on weekends again, and... Okay. um. I was. I had been very obsessively guarding my family. I had. A, I had bought a Benelli riot gun, which anybody who knows shotguns knows that's a, a fairly serious weapon, and a, a little A.M.T. backup a pistol. Which it's a hard pistol to shoot, but I can shoot it well. And um, I mean, it's so small, it, you know, it's not accurate, but, uh, but you have to really learn to. Because I, I knew how to use both weapons. And in any case, I used to march around the house at night with the shotgun ready to blow the head off of anything I saw that looked suspicious uh, and to have shown up, but none did.
3: I just want to give you a bit of context where I'm coming from. Um, I, I, I've, I knew Bud quite well. I uh, did several interviews with him. And in addition to that, uh, having spent some time with John Mack in his Harvard office uh, at Cambridge. Um, so my background is is fairly intense in having worked with individuals. And uh, I read your book. I read Communion uh, and Confirmation. And after that, I read the, book, the, the communion book five times. Five times. I had to. I had no choice um, because of the intensity of it. Um, what I want to ask you, and, and I think you probably went through this in a number of different ways, when this all first started, the intensity and the visceral confusion you're going through, and as you move through it, when did it become evident to you that there was a transition from being sort of a victim into someone who became enlightened by the whole experience? When did that happen and, and how did it happen?
1: No, that's a good question, boy, and I don't know often get asked that question. I made that happen, period. It started when, as I was talking about a few moments ago before we went into the break, deciding to go into the woods at night, back to the place where I thought it had happened, which was not easy, because remember, at that point in my life, I thought I was yeah, they might be aliens and they might not, but there was one thing that was very clear. They were monsters. And they had really roughed me up. And now I knew from through Bud other people who had also had horrible experiences with them. So that was what I had to confront. And I had to confront it in the dark, in the middle of the night alone, night after night, going out there trying to get them to return to my life. And the academics I'm, like Jeffrey Kreipl, I'm involved with now, explain that what happened to me was an initiatory experience. That is to say, a complete overturning of your reality. You, everything is turned inside out, and that's exactly what happened. And I just wanted to make sense of it. I, you know, if if I said to Anne, you know, if I get eaten, I get eaten, and she said, well, leave something behind to prove you're dead, because otherwise I. <laughs> I won't get the insurance money for seven years. And uh, and she was, she said, you know, Whitley, don't get hurt, honey. And she, I remember the night, the second night, the first night I could only make it to the edge of the yard. It was just not, I just could not walk any further into that woods. And I, the second night, she, she, Held me in my arm, her arms, and she said, Please, Whitley, you come back to me. But she didn't stop me. And I went out there again. And I finally made it down to the place where it had happened. And I went back to the house. And that began a period of years where I would go often deep into the woods. There was a cave back in the woods on a cliff overlooking a little what they are called up there kills a little stream and i would go down in that cave and turn out the light you had to climb down a cliff to get into the cave and turn out my light and be in there completely alone and completely helpless to show that i was available to be recontacted that I wanted more. And the result was a new life, quite frankly, because they did come back. They came back in all kinds of different ways, and they're still here. I mean, I meditate with them every night at three, every night, and, and there's you, always
3: meditation. Stu- you, you still do that. You yeah, still do the absolutely. meditation at three. I'm as That's involved,
1: a, what, I'm more involved with them now than I've ever been before in my life.
3: I can yeah, you, I know you, how to
1: interact with them mentally, and uh, I have a implant in my left ear that I've learned to use, and I use it as it's a research tool, and it's excellent. It really is a very good tool, and the story of it is so extraordinary. It'll it takes you beyond where we are now. I mean, anyone who's thinking about Aliens from another planet had better just put that down in the corner with a little bitty, that's a little bitty part of this huge, Mm -hmm. extraordinary thing that tells us every, the deeper you get into it, the more incredible we become, the universe becomes, and they become.
2: Your your late wife Anne back in the early nineties, she she said something that that really is central to the theme of this book, I think. And you say it's the single most important thing about the experience that has ever been said. What did she say, Whitley?
1: Well, she came out of her office one afternoon, and here's what was going on. We were having huge amounts of letters coming in. This is before email fortunately. And I say fortunately because all of these letters have now been saved at Rice University in a, you know, Whitley and Ann Streber archive, or I should say an Ann and Whitley Streber archive, because it was all her work. In any case, um, she was reading the letters and she could, you know, she was reading them and cataloging them and her, her secretary, Laurie Barnes, was helping her. And, you know, they were going through a lot of letters, I mean a lot of letters, and um, she came out of her office one time, afternoon, and she said, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death, and I said, what do you mean, and she said, well, I'm not going to say his name, because you don't want to say the name of intelligence agents on the air. Uh, because they, you know, real ones don't like that, and and it's because their families could be exposed to danger. So uh, I'm not going to say his name. She said, he was dead when you saw him. I said, yeah, and I was assuming by that, at that point, that that must have been some kind of weird hallucination. I just did not know what to make of it. She said, well, Whitley, people have that happen to them all the time and then it occurred to me that we'd had many people by that time at the cabin who had had the experience of the visitors would come to the cabin and they would come and you know groups of people would see them it wasn't it you know it wasn't a and you know, those people are all named in my book in fact it's probably my my life is probably one of the most extensively multiple witnessed paranormal experiences there has ever been and so, in any, case, in any case, it occurred to me that, well, my goodness, of course, because the dead, dead friends and relatives have been involved in every single event that took place at the cabin, except the ones that were just involving me. And um, so, it seems that the dead and the visitors are all wrapped up together somehow, and I think... If these characters are aliens from another planet, then they do not have the barrier between the living and the dead that we do, and when they come, the barrier between us and our own dead simply collapses, and suddenly our own dead are, are with us. Um, well, exactly a perfect example of this is Laurie Barnes herself, uh, and. Uh, Laurie uh, was Anne was reading letter after letter, and she was saying, "I." She said, "I need a secretary," and I said, "I would call Manpower, which was a secretarial, maybe in, still in business. I don't know." Anyway, she said, "No, no, I'll find the secretary in the letter somewhere." And a while later, she says, "Here's our secretary." She hands me a letter. It's from this woman who says she's a singer and a and an actress. I said, well, it doesn't say she's a secretary. She said, look at that handwriting. That's a professional's handwriting. And I said, but she says she's an actress and a singer. And she says, have you ever heard of her? I said, no. She said, then she's making her money as a secretary. I'm going to call her. And she called her. And it turned out she lived, like, down the street, a couple of blocks away. And she came over and became Anne's secretary for 15 years. And... Her story is tied into the dead very profoundly for two reasons. The first is, one, on one of the biggest nights we ever had at the cabin, where many people had close encounter experiences and full wakefulness, it all started in the afternoon when she was out walking, and she suddenly found her brother face-to-face with her on the road in front of the cabin. And... What was amazing about this to her is he'd been missing for 20 years, and she said, Oh my God, come down and meet my friends. And she said, He says, No, no, I just wanted to tell you I'm all right. And then instead of walking anywhere, he was as big as life as far as she was concerned, he suddenly drifts back into the woods and disappears. And Anne said at that time, after she told us this story, she said to me quietly, The visitors will be here tonight. So she already knew then what was going on. And so, but the other story about Laurie is this. She had written us originally because back in 1952, she had been lying in bed in her house in Queens. Her husband, they were both musical people. He was out on a gig. It was 11 o'clock at night and she noticed movement out of the corner of her eye and she looked up. And these horrifying looking dark blue trolls were standing in a row beside the bed. And she was appalled. And one of the first, the lead one said, do not be afraid. We're not here for you. We're interested in the girl-child you're carrying. <laughs> hmm. So, you know, that was, that, oh, she said, oh, well, that's fine, I'm not scared anymore. Not quite. She was just terrified by that of course then it says to her she said it says to her why are you so frightened and she said because you're so ugly and it touched her hand with its dark blue gloved hand and said my dear one day you will look just like us and recently a few months a month or so ago Lori passed away after a long life and I interviewed her daughters on on my podcast and they told sort of their side of the story and they've never had anything in their lives that would suggest why this interest was there in the older daughter but they certainly believed that the story i mean why wouldn't they and uh it's an improbable story but when people tell the truth it's per- if she laurie didn't make it up she'd have no reason to so but what it tells me is One possibility is that this has more to do with us in more ways that we do not understand and do not expect at our level. For example, if you take caterpillars and butterflies, or tadpoles and frogs, there are many species on Earth which have radically different forms at different stages in their development. What if we're such a species? And what if Laurie is now among those extraordinary and strange beings, but they are human in a way that we have never even suspected? I think that's a fascinating speculation, frankly. It's,
2: it's remarkable, it's, it's to turn incredible. a phrase.
1: I mean, I'm, not gonna, I'm right. not gonna debate anybody over it, but it's fascinating. For
2: well, sure. to turn an old phrase, maybe where there is death, there is hope. Um, well, we we're, don't we're approaching die
1: in, in the in the in the final sense that some scientists will tell you at all that is not the correct.
2: We're approaching the uh, the top of the hour. We're going to take a break okay. here, but I, I want to start this conversation now, and we'll we'll continue after. And of course, we'll get Victor back in here. But uh, after Anne passed away in 2015. Your contact and experiences with these visitors intensified, and you believe, you're right, that she may have something to do with this, or something that she's doing after death.
1: Explain. Oh, yeah. We'll get into that for sure.
2: Well, we, we have about uh, just a couple minutes. We can start
1: okay, well, just dis- discussing I, it now. Yeah. Yeah. Annie died at 7.15 in the evening on August the 11th, 2015, the worst moment of my life. Afterwards, my son and daughter were with me and I was devastated. I could not imagine life without Anne. Anne was a big personality, a brilliant person. She was the one who understood all this stuff that was happening much better than I did. And I was totally alone. And Then at 9.30, the phone rang. And it was a friend, Didn't know she had no way of knowing Anne had died, she knew Anne was sick, all of our friends did. And she said, Whitley, I just heard Anne's voice in my ear saying, call Whitley. And I had been sitting there thinking, Annie, if you're still here in any way, please, please give me some kind of sign. And that phone call came in, and I said to her, "Bell, Annie passed away. It Seven fifteen, And that was the beginning of what turned out to be a whole new kind of relationship with my wife. I'm still married as far as I'm concerned. I wear both rings now, and I look at it as we're still a couple. We're still married, only we're just down to one physical body. We, we only have one left.